On August 30th of 1974, the Cowden family of White City, Oregon would decide to take an impromptu camping trip for a Labor Day weekend getaway, as they had done many times before. This unscheduled vacation, though, would become one of the most haunting cases of a family who just seemingly vanished out of purely thin air. For months, there would be no sign of the Cowden family. So what the fuck happened on that camping trip? Let's go over the timeline for what's known as the still unsolved case of the Cowden Family Massacre. What's up, guys? It's your girl, Ginger, the true crime queen. I'm reminding you now that listener discretion is advised. The dark nature of this show is not suitable for young ears or those who are sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's get it. Welcome, welcome, welcome back, you guys. This week's case is a bit of a head-scratcher. It's been 46 years since this occurred. There's only one known suspect that still actually sits behind bars for a completely different crime, and he's not leaving there anytime soon. Never mind confessing. Unfortunately, this case might make it all the way to 50 years without being officially closed. Let's go back and walk through what's been called one of the most haunting unsolved cases in Oregon State history. So the Cowden family of four is made whole with father 28-year-old Richard Cowden, 22-year-old mom Belinda, 5-year-old son David, and little 5-month-old baby Melissa. Richard was said to be employed as a logging trucker, and that particular weekend he was supposed to be hauling gravel, but when his work truck broke down and he wasn't able to get another one for the job, he opted for taking his family to their favorite camping spot up in the Siskiyou Mountains near Carberry Creek. It's located in southern Copper County, Oregon State. They often go here for camping as it's also very close to Belinda's mother, the children's grandmother, as she lives about a mile or so from this particular camping spot. The family was said to even have brought their family dog, a basset hound named Droopy. And how fucking adorable is that? A basset hound named Droopy. On their way home from camping for the weekend, Belinda and the family had made plans to stop by their mother's for dinner on their way back home to White City, Oregon, which is about an hour away from the campground. The family was said to have arrived at their camping location on Friday, August 30th, 1974, parking their 1956 Ford truck on the road just a little walk towards their actual campsite. The family's activities and moves for Saturday, August 31st of 1974 are not reported and are completely unknown. I pray to God that this was the happiest day in their entire lives as a family, though. On Sunday morning, September 1st at about 9 a.m., Richard, the father, and his five-year-old son, David, are seen at the Copper County General Store purchasing a gallon of milk, then leaving on foot, presumably back to their campsite for breakfast. This will be the last ever-known sighting of anyone within the Cowden family alive and well. When the Cowden family doesn't show up for dinner at Belinda's mother's house on Sunday night, she decides to travel up the road and see what's holding them up. When she arrives, she finds everything in place at the campsite, all their belongings, but no Richard, no Belinda, no David, and no sight of baby Melissa either. 
Belinda's mother, Ruth, starts to notice more about the area. Her daughter's purse is actually sitting there on the table next to a pack of open cigarettes she likes to smoke. Baby Melissa's diaper bag is also there. All their clothes are in the truck, being that the keys to it were also left on the table. Belinda's mother, Ruth, then notices that Richard's wallet and his super nice wristwatch were laying on the ground, and his wallet was actually still holding $21 in cash, which interestingly, Wikipedia says is the equivalent to $109 in 2019. But all of that is just left there in the dirt. After waiting there for about an hour for any sign of the family members to return to the campsite, Ruth returns back home to notify the police of the situation. She meets with the Oregon State Police back at the campsite shortly where one state trooper was said to have described the scene saying, The campground was spooky. Even the milk was left on the picnic table. You should imagine a campsite in full force, barbecue set up, dishpan with soap and now cold water, picnic table with personal belongings, and a family just seemingly vanished into thin air. Lieutenant Mark Kezer, leading the investigation, said it was actually delayed up to a day because of the lack of evidence that any actual violent occurrence had happened. Then, the family's basset hound Droopy was actually found the next morning on September 2nd, which some reports saying that he was found scratching at the front doors of the same general store that Richard and his five-year-old son David were at the day before, but other reports claimed that the dog was found unharmed about five miles away from the campsite. So I'm not sure which of those are true. There was no obvious motive for a crime, and the family was said to have very little debt and no known enemies of any sort, so robbery was obviously also not a factor being that Mr. Cowden's wallet was recovered with cash, as well as his expensive watch on top of his wife's purse and their car keys all set out left for anyone to have walked up and stole. The scene and lack of evidence left is so many unknowns and the authorities weren't really sure what to think at this point. After discovering the only clothes that did not appear to be at the actual campsite were the family's bathing suits, so it was theorized that the family had possibly gone swimming in the nearby Carberry Creek, though still no signs, no bodies, nothing has been found. This ended up being one of the largest search operations again in Oregon's history, but later being surpassed by Kyron Horman's search at the height of the search including both Oregon State and local Jackson County police officers hundreds of volunteers, Explorer Scouts, the United States Forestry Service, and even the Oregon State National Guard. They had helicopters, planes, all equipped with infrared technology that would detect recently disturbed soil. And the guys in the U.S. Forestry Service did a full search along 25 miles, or 40 kilometers, of forest backroads throughout the area and didn't find a thing. So after five days of intense searching and finding literally zip zero nada, it was officially suspended by authorities and an investigation had been launched by September 7th of 1974. The family and friends of the Cowden family would continue to search, though, for months on their weekends and free time whenever they could. Over 150 people were personally interviewed who had been in the general same area as the family that same Labor Day weekend of 1974. And even later, a $2,000 reward was also being offered for any information that led to the whereabouts of the Oregon's missing family. Wikipedia also says that $2,000 was really worth about five times as much as that in 2019, so really being equivalent to about $10,000. The father of the family, Richard Cowden's sister, had written a letter to be published in the Medford, Oregon Mail Tribune, 
and it addressed the hunters in the area, and she pleaded that they be very mindful of their upcoming hunting season, find of anything that they might find relatable to her brother's family's disappearance. After this, it's reported that about 200 Oregon state citizens also came together and wrote their own letters to their state senator, petitioning him to seek the assistance of the FBI in the disappearance of the Cowden family. How awesome is that? Well, what's not so awesome is the petition was later denied, being that there wasn't enough evidence for the FBI that that the Cowden family didn't leave on their own accord, or more specifically, that they were forced to cross state lines, which would then grant the assistance of the FBI resources, but they had no indication that the family had ever left the state, willingly or unwillingly. The story has been written about by famed true crime author Anne Rule, who in her book, But I Trusted You, Volume 14, briefly discusses the case, and she points out that at the same time, there was a total of eight missing women between Oregon and Washington State. The Calvin family investigation was trying to find any correlation between any of these eight missing women and the family, but was never able to match anything up. And Anne Rule then adds in the same book that all of those eight missing women cases would later be linked to none other than Ted Bundy's nasty ass. So back to the drawing board, so to speak, for the investigators trying to find this missing family of four. An entire seven and a half months would go by before anything would move the case along, though. On April 12th of 1975, there happened to be two gold diggers. Just kidding, the term is gold prospectors. And they were from Forest Grove, Oregon. And they were in the general area of the same mountains that this family vanished in. Upon embarking on a trail along a steep hill... They uncover the horrendous sight of what appears to be a male decomposing body tied to the base of a tree located along the steep hill they are hiking on. Upon a more thorough search of the area surrounding the tree with the deceased male, an additional adult skeleton was found along with the skeletons of a child and an infant about 50 yards away. What's creepy as hell, though, is that they were hidden within a small cave in the area and larger rocks had been moved in front of the cave, and used to conceal and disguise the entrance to it. It was only upon dental record comparisons that the bodies found in the area were confirmed to be those of the Cowden family. But how the hell did they die? What happened? Autopsy shows that both 22-year-old mother Belinda and her 5-year-old son David were each fatally shot with a 22 caliber weapon. It appeared as though baby Melissa had suffered some sort of severe head trauma that resulted in death, whereas the father, Richard Cowden, wasn't able to have a definitive cause of death. I read in some places that the autopsy technician was sure that he shot also, but he could not prove it. So was this some sort of murder-suicide situation, possibly? There was no weapon found in the area, and if you remember, Richard was actually found to a tree, So did he tie himself up and then commit suicide? Pretty fucking doubtful. So investigators also believed that Richard was killed separately from his family, and the other Cowden family members were likely killed in a separate location, but prior to being concealed within the cave. The Lieutenant Mark Kezer actually quoted that the whole nature of the thing smacks of a weirdo, which obviously meant that they felt it was a random occurrence by a random offender. But based on the location of the cave where three of the members had been hidden away, the kicker is that the location of the cave itself would almost surely be only a known location by a local resident of the area. This means 
that they should be looking closer at the residence and anyone who might have seen something odd that day. So after reconstructing the timeline, investigators also believe that after returning to the campground after making the trip to the Copper General Store for milk on the morning of Saturday, September 1st, 1974, the Cowden family must have went swimming in the nearby Carberry Creek, which runs into Applegate Lake. And I had to look at a map of the area, and obviously this was over 30 years ago, so the lay of the land has changed a little bit, but I can generally tell that there's a rather large swimming area right near a couple designated campgrounds in the area. And one article said that the actual campground they stayed in and the location of the general store are now below the water level of the Applegate Lake. So obviously none of that is still able to be seen. But the scene of the crime at the time seems to indicate that there was a surprise or possibly a sudden interaction with someone who then presumably abducted the family and forced them to travel by either foot or vehicle to their fatal location, which was over seven miles away from where they were camping. After the discovery of the family's remains, a gentleman from Grants Pass area of Oregon had come forward to explain that he, in fact, checked that very cave they were found in during the initial five days of searching for the family. So to confirm which cave this volunteer searcher was talking about, he takes officers to the very same cave in which the Cowden family was discovered. And I'm assuming the exact location of the cave wasn't released in the media reporting. Obviously, that would defeat the purpose of having him confirm by directing officers to the same cave. This also helps, though, investigators believe that the family was not kept in the cave the entire time, but most likely moved to their post-mortem location to hide the evidence. But why leave the male tied to the tree? What would be the point of that? I... I don't have an answer, and I'm just spitballing here, really. Shortly after the discovery of the family's remains, though, the father of Richard Cowden was said to have unfortunately completed suicide, and he was also cleared from having to do anything with the case, so it's probably fair to assume that the tragedy of it all just overtook him. The only bright side I can think of now is that at least they're all together again up there in heaven or wherever our souls go after we die. Within the group of people known to be in the same area that weekend, a family traveling from Los Angeles, California, had told the investigators that when they arrived at the campground area around 5 p.m. on that Saturday, September 1st, they said that they noticed two men and a woman near a truck parked on the side of the road who seemed like they were waiting for this Los Angeles family to leave, which they did because it creeped them out. It turns out this truck description was traced back to a family that was that was also in the area that weekend who had stopped by a nearby cabin and actually signed the guest book that was kept by the cabin owner. And I'm not exactly sure if that meant that they did in fact stay at the cabin or if they just like signed it as they were passing through. And I really wish it would have said more about that, honestly. But this family turns out to be a man named Dwayne Lee Little. And he's a 25-year-old paroled convicted murderer and his parents. And they happen to live in a small town named Roosh, Oregon, about a half hour's drive away from the Cowden campsite. Dwayne Lee Little was released on parole from the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon, back in May of the same year, just four months prior to this cabin visit. He had just spent almost 10 years in the pen for murdering a teenage girl by the name of Orla Faye Phipps in the Springfield area of Oregon when he was just 15 years old. The background on that unfortunate story is that this blonde 16-year-old Orla Faye 
had taken her horse out for a ride on November 2nd of 1964, apparently riding past the property of where Dwayne Little was living, and he was said to be friends with her older brother. When her horse later returned home without her, it was said that the physical evidence actually led law enforcement right to Dwayne's home, and Dwayne had allegedly allegedly followed her, attacked her, and left her body in the area of Cedar Flats, Oregon. Her skull had been struck with a blunt instrument, there was multiple stab wounds to her body, her throat was slit, and there was even evidence of post-mortem sexual assault. He pled not guilty to her murder after a 14-day trial, but he was convicted with her first-degree murder and sentenced to one life term by the age of 17. A news article I read about the case said that persons sentenced for first-degree murder are eligible for parole after 10 years, which is some fucking bullshit, honestly. The possibility that someone could be granted parole after what's tried as a first-degree murder should be more like 25 years. His particular victim, even though he was also young, could have easily lived at least 50 more years, so a possibility of him only serving 10 years for the murder is pretty fucked to me. Any hooser. Allegedly, an older couple also saw Dwayne Little's pickup truck near a local cemetery that happened to be located halfway between the Cowden campsite and then later what was found to be the site of the remains. This elderly couple claims that inside his truck was a group of people and that this little basset hound was actually trying to follow behind the truck. So little Droopy was like trying to stay with his little family when they were abducted. And that makes me, oh, can you imagine? As it turns out, actually, this Dwayne guy's girlfriend ratted him out to police about having a gun just four months after the Cowden family went missing, but before they were found. Having a gun in his possession is a hella big violation of his parole, and the gun he was reported to be in possession of was in fact a 22 caliber rifle. Hint, hint, that's also the same caliber as the presumed caliber to be the fatal shots to Belinda and David Cowden. So the courts then revoke his parole on January 12th of 1975. So that means he was actually already in police custody at the same time that the Cowden family's remains were discovered later that year on April 12th. Police actually offered to drop the gun charges if Dwayne would in fact be able to pass a polygraph test regarding information on the Cowden family, which he actually denied taking. He instead pled guilty to the weapons charge and ended up serving another two and a half years until his re-release on April 26th of 1977. The thing is, this guy won't talk at all. So even if they did happen to question him about any possible involvement, he most likely wouldn't have further incriminated himself. So really, in the end of April 1977, upon his re-release, Dwayne Lee Little was a free man, it seems. It turns out, though, that the guy just cannot keep his shit together. Bit of a loose butthole, I guess. Another two and a half years go by before this asshat decides to take advantage of a 23-year-old pregnant woman in need of some roadside assistance after, after her car had broken down just outside Portland, Oregon. On June 2nd of 1980, as Margie Hunter is walking down the highway, a blue Honda Civic pulls up and offers her a ride. And she actually accepts the ride when she realizes that it's just Dwayne from work. He first takes her down the road and drops her off at the payphone she wanted to go to. After she ran out of money to continue attempting to call someone, she began to walk back down the highway towards her broken down car. 
That is when for a second time, Dwayne pulls up in his little blue Honda Civic and offers her a ride to wherever she needs to go, to which she also accepts. When he passes her destination, though, and she obviously starts to freak out, is when he pulls out a knife and threatens her with it. She informs him that she's actually pregnant and pleads for him to not hurt her or the baby. And it's reported that he raped her, brutally stabbed her, finally leaving her in some bushes, presumably dead or to die. However, this badass bitch actually crawled up an embankment. He tossed her down. And she begins waving down cars and actually ends up making a long but full recovery in the hospital. Her baby even survived, thankfully. She was able to give police a thorough description of Dwayne Little Dick and his car, landing him in jail for three consecutive life sentences. One source I got this information from mentioned the fact that Dwayne himself had actually just welcomed his own first child into the world weeks before the brutal murder attempt on Margie's life. So... This guy's a real piece of shit. No, I mean like a real piece of shit. And that's a Tom McDonald reference if you didn't know. So upon Dwayne Lee Little's incarceration, he has reportedly not been cooperative in the slightest during his mental health treatment. There's literally no incentive for this piece of shit to ever confess to any of the crimes except purely for the peace of mind to the family of the victims, which he could likely give a shit about if we're being honest with ourselves. It's only jailhouse gossip basically, but apparently Dwayne Lee Little has actually confessed to the murders of the Cowden family to one of his cellmates, Rusty Kelly, whose name has been reported differently in a few different articles. There was also a Floyd Forsberg name as well, and I'm not sure if that meant that there were two confessions over the years or the cellmate's name was changed for his safety at some point, I don't know, but either way, Dwayne has denied that he's ever confessed and continues to refuse to talk about anything related to any and all of the crimes he's been associated with. He's like the anti-Ed Kemper. One won't shut up, one won't talk at all. Police had even taken a written and signed statement prepared to take to the grand jury from the cellmate. Unfortunately, it turns out that some of his claims didn't match the actual facts of the case, so it was tossed out. Because of this, though, the evidence against Duane remains circumstantial, despite the local authorities feeling as though this man is likely responsible for the 46-year-old massacre of the Cowden family. And though he remains the only suspect in what's known as the Cowden family massacre, he's never been charged with his suspected involvement, and the case is said to actually remain open still in hopes of his eventual confession. It seems as though retired officers that dealt with the case are rather embarrassed that they spent so much time on other theories rather than focusing more on this 25-year-old parolee at the time. And I would love to see this now 46-year-old unsolved case come to a close. It's not like the suspect could receive any additional time, being that he's already serving three life sentences, but that doesn't mean this family doesn't deserve its justice either. Police were never able to seize the 22 caliber rifle that Dwayne allegedly owned, so testing corroborating bullet casings to a possible murder weapon would be impossible at this point. We are basically waiting on Dwayne Lee Little's confession, and unfortunately that will probably never come. I think it's more important to share the story, especially since the family has yet to receive their justice. This beautiful little family could have grown on to have grandchildren and camping trips for years and years and years. And I sincerely hope that Dwayne Lee Little is haunted every fucking night if, in fact, he is responsible for the Cowden family massacre, as police have alleged. So I kind of need to apologize for leaving you with another unfinished story, but that's sort of how unsolved cases go, you know. 
The best we can do is spread the information we do know. So hopefully someone out there will come forward and fill in the blanks for us though. So we're going to move on to more positive notes. You guys, I got my first patron, technically. A huge shout out to Joni for being a supporter of the podcast. Welcome, my girl, to the queendom. Real recognize real, y'all. And if you want to show support to the podcast, be sure to check out the Patreon in the episode description. I'm currently working on a bonus episode for those of you that binge everything I put out. I got some super sweet reviews as well this week. Pretty much been the best week ever, to be honest. And I would also like to thank Betty Draper, 74, and Trezed97703 for your super kind and thoughtful reviews acknowledging my hard work. Thank you very much. I will be sure to keep it coming as well. Just a little reminder, you guys can always catch me live streaming every Thursday night at 9pm. Bring a drink, come chat with me. You can catch that on the Facebook page or on the Get Vocal app, G-E-T-V-O-K-L. Download it, check it out, see what it's all about. And all right, guys, as always, stay safe, lock your damn doors, and return your shopping carts to the corrals, okay? Have a great week, everybody. And that was the tea. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of the story, and if so, please tell all your creepy friends about it. You can find the sources I used for the episode in its description. You can find me slanging those memes on Instagram at TrueCrimeQueen. Check them out if you need some laughs after all this dark shit. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider buying me a coffee so I can keep making that killer-ass content. You see what I did there? Alright, you guys. Bye!